And then with the intro, we'll just... Yeah. We got a bit of an idea. Got a bit of an idea. Why make a plan now? Yeah. <laughs> At this point. We've come so far. <laughs> hey, everyone. John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, let love lift us higher. Serenity went upside down. And discipline is freedom. This is Optical Course. Here we go. Yeah. This was an incredible conversation. I'm just going to say that off the bat. Like, we're still, like... Reverberating. Reverberating, I think. (laughs) That's hard to say. (laughs) Yeah, it is. But I think people will get the idea. Yeah. Um, Josh Duick was our guest today. He... It's just a spectacular conversation. And his journey is one for... It is it is the essence of obstacle course. Yeah, it, almost the climax. It's it almost felt like the fruit of the entire journey. It's episode number eighty three, and it's in some ways it feels like everything's led to this, or this is be, this is the child born of our obstacle. <laughs> I might be getting too deep on this, maybe, but, but <laughs> it just it has everything that that we've talked about in so many other conversations, but yet amplified so strongly in this incredible story. Yeah. So Josh Duick is a three time Paralympic medalist including gold. Uh, he has won an X Games gold medal, uh, world championships. He's done it all from uh, in this sport that he has been a leader in, in for a long time and still is, which is amazing. He's actually just been nominated um, as Team Canada's Chef de Mission at the 2022 Paralympic Winter Nicely Games. said. Thank you. <laughs> I practiced that one a few yeah, times. I could tell. Um, and yeah, so he's still very involved in the sport and, and giving back and, and has been at the pinnacle. The the fact that he's the, the first person ever to perform a backflip in a sit ski, it, it just incredible stuff. And, and um, we, the, the, the term ego comes to mind just because someone who has that kind of accomplishments, you could understandably see them having a big ego and and we talked about ego in this conversation and, and when it comes up and and how interfering it can be um but but josh is definitely not a guy who would, after the conversation you'd think wow he, he's got an ego or at least his ego is getting in the way it, like f- couldn't be further from the truth he's just a, a guy who really enjoys having these deep conversations yeah and, i mean he's been on ellen and now he comes an obstacle course and you would never know like he's just so in the moment real he was actually very complimentary of of some of the questions we had which was cool he said mm-hmm. he learned a few things yeah and that's always kind of one of our aims is you know we know that there's probably somebody listening out there but we know that the guest if they learn something then it was probably a fruitful conversation yeah, absolutely and if yeah. we've learned something from the guest and we always do yeah and and this is a quote he was nervous for both being on ellen and being on obstacle course so <laughs> i think that makes it it, yeah. It's basically the same experience. No, it really is. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I love the connection we made in this episode between the battle between ego and intuition. I, mm-hmm. I, I've never really heard those two words used in the same sentence. And it's funny. I, I see looking at my Band-Aid here. I mean, honestly, this was a perfect example of my ego and my intuition. The other day we got home. We just got, you know, cheese from the farmer's market. Angie was in the shower. I don't know why that's relevant. That's relevant for me. Um, <laughs> and, and I, Sorry, Angie. <laughs> I might have to edit that one out. Ah, whatever. <laughs> um, and anyway, so I was getting the platter ready. And um, so I was cutting cheese. And, you know, you have to cut off the rind because, you know, they're lazy. They keep the rind on, these farmer farmer's market people. And I was cutting off the rind, as I was taught, towards my finger. And my intuition in that moment was you know, hey, don't cut towards your finger. And my ego was like, oh, you know, I can I, I can do it. Right at that moment, it, 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 um, the knife slipped, really sliced my finger. 
and uh, ended up uh, going to emergency. And I got really, <laughs> and I got four stitches. <laughs> I literally went to emergency, and I didn't want to because you know it's like these times of COVID. You know, I wanted some. You know, I don't want to take the doctors and nurses' attention away from like COVID patients to help like a stupid middle-aged balding guy who can't cut cheese properly. That that was my inner monologue. Yeah, um, and maybe partly. No, Angie didn't say any of that. <laughs> she didn't have to. Um, so so finally decided we got to go to the hospital. And um, and funny thing, you know what they said? This story is kind of going somewhere. Um, they said, um, I'll, I'll believe it when yeah, it gets there. <laughs> we, we always go to Shemanus because Duncan's always like a, a zoo. And we go to Shemanus Hospital, walk in there, nobody in there, walk in. I tell them what happened. I'm kind of embarrassed. And they're like, and you know what the nurse said? She's like, oh, great. She's like, because of COVID, nobody's coming to the hospital these days and we're kind of bored. <laughs> she, she literally said that. She's like, wow. we're kind of bored. So there's kind of a positive message there, folks, if you're wondering how COVID's doing on the island. Um, in some places, it's doing quite well, actually. Um, but also I got tons of care. I mean, I had like people all around me and they're like, how did this happen? I'm like, should I make up something uh, more noble than just, you know, cutting cheese? But, uh, anyways, that's the story I've thought of when Josh was talking about the war of his, his ego and intuition, which led to his crash. But I thought maybe that story would take away. So I shared it now. Thank you. These happen in large moments and these happen in small moments. Guys, don't let your ego get you in charge. You might end up in the emergency room. Yeah. The next time Josh and I did. Exactly. There a lot of parallels there. And so I think as we go into this episode, it folks, if you want to relate, you can always just think back to the time that John cut the cheese. So if Josh's story is too grand and you're just like, I can't quite relate. It's a little more on a human level. Thanks everyone. Welcome. Thanks for being here, Josh Duick. Welcome to Obstacle Course. We're, we're super stoked to have this conversation. It's, it's been many months in the making, and, and thanks for being here. Appreciate the opportunity. Looking forward to seeing where we can take this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Us too. Um, the place that we were planning on starting here, and, and then we'll see where we end up, um, but the place we, we thought we would start is um, an incredible moment in your life and, and one that that maybe you're you're best known for than than really anything else and it's just a an incredible image um there's many places online that people can watch this if they want to get the full experience of it but but josh you were the first person in in history to perform a backflip on a sit ski and and um this there's a lot to this story but but where we really wanted to um start and and create this image is is the actual experience of it for you and and the physical and emotional experience of of performing that feat. So if you could just take us back to that day and and paint a bit of a a picture for us. That's fully loaded. That's uh, like a box of TNT to start off the conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The the moment was a long time coming. Uh, it, It started as a dream years and years and years prior to the actual execution the day itself uh, was in the Whistler backcountry up in the, the Callahan Valley. Um, a bluebird day, temperature was pretty warm, um, almost too warm to be building a jump of that size and scope. And uh, the, the landing as well was a little bit uh, mashed potato. And uh, <laughs> so it was, in uh, a lot of ways, the day itself was almost like a day at the beach. It was warm and sunny and, and a part of our um, overall challenge was maintaining hydration and, and uh, keeping things on track. The, uh, the jump itself was um, pretty,
pretty substantial, probably about 15 feet tall. And uh, the trajectory of the jump was going to send me about 25 or 30 feet up. And the distance I needed to clear would be about 50 feet. And so we had this concept in mind of getting the sit ski to do a backflip with me in it. And we thought that that would be the, uh, the perfect setup to, to achieve that goal. And again, that goal had been sitting around for a very long time. And uh, as you, you mentioned, it had never been achieved or even attempted in history. So we had this idea, we thought it was possible. And I, I felt it was really important to have a key group of people supporting it, like uh, both uh, folks that were experts in jump shaping and building so that I knew that uh, the consistency of the jump was going to allow me to achieve that goal, but also uh, so that there was no undue pressure that was uh, happening internally or externally to achieve this. Like, you're the man, dude, like you got this. (laughs) It was literally, uh, I remember driving in from Whistler to the the trailhead and then we got into a snowcat and drove up to the, uh, the location in the mountain where we were going to do the jump. And, uh, it wasn't our first effort actually we had gone out a couple of other times and built some jumps and it was the same story on all occasions it was all right we're gonna go uh make an effort today mm-hmm. and if uh if the effort's successful it's gonna be amazing um but there there is also a chance that uh, i'm not feeling it and you guys are gonna go through the effort of building this massive jump and i might not even hit it and that actually was the case the first couple times around and uh my, my, my buddies, and these were like close childhood friends as well. So they gave me that sense of, they held the space for me to, to be able to really be within myself and listen to my inner voice through this. Cause there's a lot of risk in, in what we were about to attempt. Yeah. And oh, so sure. I needed to make sure that that space was held with compassion and uh, enthusiasm, but not too much enthusiasm, if you know what I'm saying. Mm. And uh, so it's like, there's a good chance that I'm going to go do something totally awesome today. And there's a good chance I'm not going to do anything. And my buddies are all skiers and they're like, dude, what do we care? Like, if you don't hit the jump, that means we get first tracks off of it. And we'll just like session it all day. So it's not like it's going to be a lost cause. Right. And that in itself alleviated a ton of pressure. Like I, I knew that I needed a lot of support in order to achieve it. But at the same time, I didn't feel like I was putting anybody two out if you will well that's that's a brilliant point you bring up josh is um this is a solo endeavor but totally saturated in community and and with with your friends and and uh the video shows that you know spoiler alert when you do land the jump um you know everybody around there is just screaming and, and 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 clapping and and it's such a community thing but yet at the same time a solo pursuit and i just i love that juxtaposition um of that jump and of your story yeah yeah it was uh i've never been actually asked to paint the day of of the picture so well done on uh on that question in itself right because it's forcing me to really think about what that day was all about and there was a lot of things going on um one of my really good buddies rory um had just gone through uh, an incredibly tragic loss and his wife had passed away two weeks earlier And that was the first time he was back in the mountains and it was a, a good reason for him to be back in the mountains because I trust Rory and he also has a really crazy imagination and <laughs> thinks that a lot of things that most other people don't see as possible for Rory, they are possible. So it was like, this was just totally a natural progression. 
for me in his eyes. He wasn't like, dude, this is crazy or anything like that. He was just like, this is awesome. Hey, like, isn't it cool to be back out in the mountains? And, and, uh, so there was an incredible amount of energy and we really feel that his late partner, Sarah Burke was with us in spirits and, and holding that space. And again, if you tune into that video online, mm-hmm. you'll see that we dedicated that moment to Sarah and, uh, the, the feeling that we all shared is let love lift us higher. And uh, we were certainly fueled and motivated by that energy source and, and for sure by the, the spirit of Sarah. Um, yeah. And it, it's uh, again, just a bunch of my childhood buddies out in the backcountry having a good time. And it was that bluebird day and a little bit warmer than I think any of us would have cared for, but we were able to, to work through it. And um, one of the, the last ditch efforts when we were leaving the, the trailhead is I was like, I saw a sheet of plywood on the ground. I'm like, Hey, can you guys grab the plywood and throw it on top of the cat? So they did. And it uh, allowed me to get out of my sit ski throughout the day. And I brought a yoga mat as well so that I could just sit and do some yoga. Or I guess the, the initial thought was a, a place for me to get out of my sit ski to go to the bathroom. Cause I knew it was going to be a very long day and, um, getting around with, a mobility challenge in the backcountry is <laughs> yeah is also um at that point in time hadn't been explored at all so wow. we had a bunch of variables that we needed to think through and, and do our best to overcome or at least mitigate some of those challenges and uh yeah it was a, a long long day and many efforts went in to achieve that uh, that that jump that became iconic i guess yeah. at the end of the day absolutely and and do you do you recall the actual emotions like the or the the feeling of being completely upside down for the first time in in I don't know exactly how long but but a, a long time um do you, do you recall that that flash of a moment there was there was certainly we were fueled by love but there was definitely um, a bunch of fear into the equation as well because we realized that um, you know any anything that was to go awry could have some pretty significant consequence so uh, upside down it was <laughs> and 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 i gotta go back a little bit we did practice quite a bit on foam pit and uh, onto an airbag so i had been going upside down quite a bit it wasn't like um the the effort on snow was my first time going upside down um so we did have some practice there but the the apex of the jump when i was upside down it was uh I guess I'm still at a loss of words. That was almost 10 years ago. And I still can't quite describe um, that feeling of weightlessness, that feeling of freedom, that feeling of, it's a little bit of like that stomach drop as if you were to walk off of a curb and not know it was there or to go down a pitch in the dark and just kind of feel your stomach drop away from you or a roller coaster a little bit. Like there was a, you know, my, my, uh, everything was getting inverted. Um, my perceptions, my reality, and also my body. So that was um, a full sensory overload. I think that would be a reasonable way to put it. I can't describe it because it was a full sensory overload. Yeah, but you know, I've watched that video many times and I swear you were smiling. Maybe that's just like, you know, crazy fear. (laughs) You're just like, what is happening? But I swear you're smiling and your face almost seemed to be like serene as if like your life had led up to this moment and now you are in it because to pull something like that off, um, you must just have to be in utter control and focus. Like, yes, you, yes, you were scared and stuff, but you can't be upside down in a sit ski and be like, oh, my God. You know, you, you, you got to be serene, meditative in the moment. And, and your face reflected that. 
Um, and so th that's what I saw anyways. Maybe it felt different, but but I, I can't I can't help but think that you had to be totally in control in that situation to pull it off. Control is a funny one, but everything else I'm totally on board with. I was there was definitely uh, feelings of um, serene, uh, deep meditation, hyper focus, very present. Mm -hmm. um, and it was uh, simple cues, right? I knew what my job was. Um, you know, once pointing down the in run, like skiers ready. I'm like, yeah, cameras ready. Yeah. And then it was drop in. And of course the drop in was actually quite bumpy and just, but on the, if you look closely on the very uh, tip of the jump, there was a couple of, of gloves there. And that's all I really wanted to do was keep my eyes focused on those gloves and then my chin neutral and let the jump actually provide the trajectory and start the rotation and everything like that. So my job was really simple. It was to get out of my own way and not to allow fear to interrupt the process mm. and um, everything was kind of premeditated in that sense. So yeah, I was absolutely in the moment. Uh, there was no distraction and perhaps that's why it was visceral in some ways and, and tough to explain like, how did it feel or what was it? And, and it, it's, it's, um, I'm glad that you clued in that there was a sense of serene or smile because that's not always the case when I'm skiing, you see uh, a lot more intensity and, uh, like when I'm ski racing, you see a more of a pursed and almost maybe angry look on my face coming down the mountain. Mm -hmm. But there was a sense of calm, mm. for sure. I think I had to be calm in order to be present to my body, to listen to those signs. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, we made a couple of efforts, built a few other jumps that we never, I never ended up hitting um, because something didn't feel right. And And that was like, Perhaps for me, probably one of the most important parts of that whole experience was to create the space to make an effort to do something pretty out there, um, but still allow myself to to feel deeply within and uh, tap into my intuition, if you will, and, and know the difference between if this is the right time or the wrong time. And of course, fear is going to be part of the equation. And I was definitely feeling that, but everything else was lining up. So I was able to, to set that aside, focus in on my breath, yeah. calm myself, and then just abided the process that, you know, it was, there was a little bit of a scientific method to it. We, we looked at all the variables and saw that it was possible. And, and then we just had to allow it, if you will. Yeah. The get out of our own way yeah i was just going to bring up that same expression again because I, there's a couple things in there that really jumped out as as poignant and, and meaningful and, and we're going into some deep places here which is perfect um you said well like that the key was getting out of your own way and not letting fear interrupt the process and and that's what created that feeling of serenity which i just think is like that can be extrapolated out for so many of of um instances in our lives where if we can get out of our own way and, and I mean we're, we'll still be there like we'll still be fully present but what I think what we mean by get out of our own way is not like not let ourselves um, or our negative self-talk or a, a lacking self-concept or whatever it is bring that fear in so um, and, and when we are able to do that and just kind of practice acceptance and and be present um, and not let fear interrupt, then then that's when we find that peace and serenity and and achievement because 
that that serenity was going hand in hand with with achieving something that had literally never been done by a human before that was one of the just kind of simple questions i had was like (laughs) how is it how does it feel to do something that no one has ever done in human history before like how like when when someone says that to you what what is what thought crosses your mind uh, not much actually. Like for me, that was a very personal inquisition to see if I could listen to the power of my intuition in a critical moment where, and when I say I've thought about this for a long time, I broke my back in 2004 mm-hmm. and immediately, you know, at the age of 23, um, a couple of my hot dog buddies were like, dude, I hear about this sit ski thing and you're going to learn how to sit ski. Eh? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like no idea really what that meant or what it would look like. And so we're like, dude, yeah, freestyle, like you can bring freestyle to the sport. And again, this is pre-YouTube. So there was no evidence online of what people were capable of doing or, or that what hadn't been attempted. And I was like, yeah, man, like I bet we could do 360s and backflips and stuff like that. And just like no clue about what it would be like to operate a 50 pound chunk of metal strapped to a body that's half paralyzed. And so that idea got put into the dumpster at least way off of my priority list for a long time because I was humbled immediately once I got onto the sit ski and I was like, not going to talk about that one again for a long time. <laughs> yeah, and but- it was uh, uh, post games in 2010. I went and filmed a short documentary with a really good friend of mine, Mike Douglas and Mark Apma called the, uh, the, the freedom chair. Mm-hmm. And it was partway through that venture in the backcountry that we started to unpackage the idea of maybe doing a backflip again because at that point in time after seven years of being in the sit ski and being a tinker i had uh, really spent a lot of time and energy dialing in the sit ski to where it would feel like it was a part of my body and even furthermore that it would actually the the intent that i always had in building my equipment to me was to uh, allow both the body and the equipment to basically disappear into the ether and then it would just be uh, my spirit or my energy connecting to the environment Mm -hmm. and so um, you know that that's a nice objective to work towards Um, and maybe in certain moments I was able to achieve that in my skiing where everything else disappeared and it was just uh, my spirit interpreting the environment around me and making my way through the mountains and honoring that time and space in the mountains whether I was ski racing or free skiing or you know that's that's actually a nice way to look at all of life if we can kind of get out of the way of ourself and our body and just really become one with the whole and that was my goal with the sit ski and we were getting closer to it so it it no longer felt like a 50 pound chunk of metal strapped to a half paralyzed body it just felt like i was with the snow and a part of the mountain i know that sounds very esoteric and out there but that was a part of the mindset and, and certainly the approach that we had. And so in 2011, we were feeling like it was getting a bit closer. So the idea of doing a backflip became a little more forefront once again. And um, so when I'm the first person in the world to do it, how do I feel? I don't know. Um, but I certainly felt really, really um, relieved, if anything, that uh, I was able to, you know, put forth a thought and, and to bring it to life and to do it, as you mentioned off the top, like to do it with a really great group of friends. Like it wasn't uh, 
individual endeavor on on some fronts but at the same time there's no way i would have made that effort if it wasn't for specifically those people that were engaged and involved and that believed in it that held space but also kept space if you will you know the thing that occurred to me when you shared that beautiful story um and, and i'm pretty sure 100 percent of our listeners would like to capture that feeling you described and put it in a bottle and have that all the time maybe that's maybe that's what happens when ego isn't in charge and and i know the relationship between ego and intuition and your spirit um it, it plays a starring role in your story and i know um like i know we're going to go back here and talk a little bit about um the accident and i know when that happened you said i believe it was in your ted talk that you felt a battle in the moment between your ego and your intuition um, it almost sounds like like between your higher self and your your ego. And in that moment, unfortunately, the ego took center stage and mm. and, and then the accident occurred. And, and and you know, fast forward to the jump we just discussed, it's almost like here you are, a new a new person in full spirit um, and able to take to, to do something no other person has done um, in that situation. And I just think, what, what an incredible journey. Uh, what an emotional journey. And, and, and I wondered if after you landed that, if you made a connection back to 2004 um, when you had that same thought. Obviously, the process, there was there was certainly a lot of echoes from the accident in 2004 uh, going through it. Uh, when we struck the idea to, to do the backflip again in, in 2011, I immediately circled back to the people that mattered most to me and had a, a pretty in-depth discussion with my mom and my wife. And I said, hey, you know, I've got this idea, like I, I want to do a backflip. And I circled back to them because I know how much our actions affect those around us. Or And that's one of the big lessons that I learned when I broke my back. And I certainly didn't want to um, make my situation any worse and I didn't want to bring anybody else down in that effort. And so I wanted to maybe not get the blessings of my family, uh, but really wanted to make sure that they were at peace with the idea and, and know where I was coming from and why I wanted to do this. And so my mom, uh, she didn't, I think, really understand the scope of what I was doing, or maybe she didn't want to understand the scope of what I was doing. So she's like, you've got such wonderful friends to support you in these things. It's a wonderful idea. And I was actually kind of... <laughs> totally hoping that she would be like, it's a terrible idea. Please don't do it. Just don't do it for your mother's sake. And yet she kind of gave me her blessings. I was like, Oh damn it. Okay. All right. And then, um, Lacey was, uh, like, if you can see it and if you believe it, like who am I to get in the way of that process? And you know, that I would support you through anything. And I just hope that you're doing it for the right reasons, like doing it intrinsically and not for any other external validation. And so that was, the support from the the two strongest figures and, and roles in my life. Like I love my dad too. Absolutely. Like I've drawn so much from him and his character and his strength and his drive and his work ethic. But of course, like getting um, the, the insights from my mom and Lacey was, was critical. Mm -hmm. And and so a lot of my motivation wasn't to be the first person to do it. It was interesting because I saw it was possible. And so that's like, I felt like a pioneer you know, I was discovering new ground or at mm. least looking at that. And that was neat. But uh, as you mentioned, you know, intuitively uh, when, when my accident happened in 2004, I knew I was going too fast. I knew that I wasn't 
tooled in for that jump at that time. And even further, like explicitly, I was advised from the master jump coach on site that day, whatever you do, don't do any front rotations off this jump because the takeoff is too shallow and you're going to overshoot the steep landing hill. And of course, 23 years old, filled with confidence and like so many other stupid guys and <laughs> girls can be stupid too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to gentify this one, but I was being an idiot. And he's like, whatever you do, don't go left. And of course, what direction am I going to point it? Yeah. I'm going to go right. And uh, I, I explicitly um, went against the advice of, of uh, Woody. And that, uh, again, was compounding insecurities and trying to prove myself and external validations and all that stuff. Intuitively, I knew going off the jump in 2004 was a bad idea. And so... I, I've shared that story countless times with a lot of school kids. Mm -hmm. And for me, the backflip was more about testing my capacity to live the values that I was sharing. You know, I said, Hey guys, I didn't do this. And if you take a moment, if you feel your spidey senses tingling, if you feel that little ball in your stomach, just take a pause, just a second, just a second pause. And if I did that, could have stopped before the jump. Or maybe, you know, not done the front flip and just gone really far down the landing hill and broke a couple legs or something like that. But so, so it, I didn't. Sorry to interrupt. It's just a really interesting point you just brought up about um, about like fear and, li and listening to intuition. I, I just wanted to be before we go too much further. I, I want to um, dig into that and just understand when you know that like when you feel that that fear or energy in you, when you know it's like fear that you should be doing something else or you're doing the wrong thing versus nervousness, which before we got on here, we talked about how like nervousness is a good thing. Um, and, and so like how you correctly listen to that intuition and, and know what it's trying to tell you. I was, I was just wanted to ask you that if, if you have any, any wisdom on, on that, uh, that decision-making process. Jeez. If you're, if your body is uh, giving you some red flags, uh, I think it's really important just to, take that pause. And, and I'd often think that it's good to weigh the risk and reward. So let's go back to the jump where I broke my back. Um, I could do a quick evaluation of that. What will I gain by flexing in front of a bunch of kids, a big old front flip, very little, it's not going to help them improve in their life or their technique. Um, they could live with or without that moment of me being brave. Uh, <laughs> what can I lose? Oh, we know. And it could have been worse. Right? I might not have woke up from when I got knocked out. I could have just been lights out and game over. So the, the, the risk and the consequence was quite high. The reward was quite low. There's other situations in life, and I always encourage people to take risk because how else are we going to grow and evolve, right? Like if, uh, you know, I think stress and challenge is super important. You go to the gym, you stress the body, um, you gain muscle. Uh, you recover afterwards, and, uh, you know, you build and you grow. And uh, I think that... Um, general analogy covers uh, all aspects of our existence. We need to challenge ourselves to grow. We need to take risk. We need to put ourselves out there. And um, at the same time, like if you're looking to take a giant amount of risk, uh, that might not add up. I think we need to be patient and incremental and, uh, and just, you know, grow slow. And sometimes we have like, you know, big growth curves as well, but um, anyhow, but point being, if the red flags are on, your intuition's hollering. Uh, if your body's telling you something, 
probably not a bad idea to pump the brakes, give it a quick thought, weigh out risk reward, make a decision, yeah. go back up and do it again. Right? Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with the jump that I hit that day. It was just the approach that I made in that moment was incorrect. And, and the why, like the, the purpose behind it, like examining the why, I think true, is a really true. good point. Uh, I was just going to say, I, I think it's really important we point out here because it, it could be, be hearing a mixed message because we're, we're not saying if you feel fear, that could be a red flag and don't do it. Um, like you said, the why, because sometimes in, you know, Steve, Stephen Pressfield talks about in the war of art. In fact, if you feel fear, that's what you should do. In fact, that's what you should go towards. And so, you know, trying to get the wisdom in this, it almost seems like if, if the why is begins and ends with your ego, that's probably, you know, a red flag that it might not end well. But if the why is it's going to tap into my higher self or benefit someone else besides myself, then that's probably a good thing to do with your fear. Um, so, so just kind of having a time where we can just check in with ourselves and be like, what is my why in this moment? And you knew what your why was, but, you know, ego is a powerful thing, especially when you're 23. You know, you, that's uh, <laughs> that's a, a brilliant clarification, right? When I was 23, that jump was about external motivation, right? I was looking for validation from my peers. Mm -hmm. I was looking to prove myself. Um, the group of kids that I was coaching at that time were brilliant athletes and uh, far more talented than I was. So that's an interesting spot for an insecure uh, young man to be in is is coaching and to be the the head of a club that's filled with more talent than you and and i wanted to keep up with them as much as anything mm -hmm. and uh you know so there was an external motivator there and that was definitely fueling or fueled by my ego um, we had no idea like we were capturing the backflip on the sitski because obviously it was a a pretty special moment and maybe um, if, if nothing less than just a nice little photo to put on my wall in my office or whatever it might be, maybe Mike and, uh, the, the, the filmer and photographer, Mike and Paul, maybe they knew that this was actually pretty special and had the capacity to really create a positive outreach, but I wasn't thinking that far. I did not think that Ellen DeGeneres would call <laughs> me 24 hours after the video went on YouTube. I had no idea that 500 million people around the world within a six month time frame would be tuned into my story and I wouldn't wow. uh, have ever guessed the number of people that were motivated or, or uh, shifted their perception and outlook on life or life with a disability. Like that was not part of my drive. It was really intrinsically motivated to test myself to see if I could listen to my intuition in a critical situation. Mm -hmm. Is Ellen actually as uh, genuine and, and hilarious as she appears to be on TV? <laughs> The 15 minutes that I had with Ellen, I would say she's amazing, incredible, kind, graceful, attentive, present. She um, seems like she's gone through a great deal of adversity in her life yeah. and was making a very strong effort to utilize that platform that she had worked for, but also was blessed with to make a difference in the world. And I know that like lately she's been in a bit of a hot seat and mm -hmm. that's why I always preface with, I only had 15 minutes with her. But those 15 minutes, she was very real. And, oh, and uh, so are you. Because man. of that. Great, great job on there. You looked super comfortable and, and just spoke truth. And it was awesome. Yeah. Everyone, you, you should watch it. We'll throw that in the show notes. Uh, we, I found the video on YouTube yesterday. So it's well, out there. And, and 
I just want to give a couple shout outs here actually, because that was um, the most nervous I've ever been is like just behind the doors before they opened and called me on the stage. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, more nervous than being on top of the end run to do the backflip. Wow. More nervous than being in the start gate for Canada, both in Vancouver 2010 and Sochi 2014. Wow. And um, in, 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 in of course, this is the universe working in its beautiful way. Um, Rory called me up uh, as I was behind the wall. And I'm like, why am I, why do I have my cell phone? And why was I picking it up? <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, oh, Bushy. And he calls and he's like, hey, man. He's like, I don't know when you're going on to see Ellen, but... Uh, <laughs> I just want you to know that it was always one of Sarah's dreams to meet Ellen. And I know she's looking over us right now and she's going to be so stoked for you, bro. And I just hope you go out there and have fun, man, because like, that's what it's about. And uh, just know that it's, uh, it's a pretty special time. And, and, uh, and Sarah would be so proud of you. Um, and of course this, this is a new widower, right? He just lost his wife, like mm -hmm. the, the love of his life. And he just picked up his phone. So like, for those of you that aren't really convinced that we're all one and that the universe works in mysterious ways, um, I've got some pretty direct evidence of just like, I was, I couldn't be more terrified. And then there was a great sense of calm and peace that came over me. And then I realized in those moments, in that time that I had with Ellen, it was uh, not about me. Hmm. It was uh, just about being present to the opportunity and whatever unfolded would be. But like you, you, like you said, Josh, you shouldn't be surprised because um, you shared your three mantras that kind of helped you through your journey. And that's the very first one. Everything happens for a reason. And that's, that, was, that was number one. And the second one is nothing happens we're not strong enough to deal with. And, and the third one you've shared is everything in my life has prepared me for this moment. Those three mantras, which, which I'm stealing those, by the way. Um, you know, and everyone should because they're great. Um, they were on full display in that moment and in many moments. And um, I, I'm curious where those came from. Like, obviously, you know, we've heard those before, but why did you adopt those three? I've wondered that myself. I don't know where they've come from. Uh, somewhere in the ether, but they were presented to me uh, in the ambulance ride from the ski hill down to the hospital as I sat in pain filled with fear and uh, some hope that this was only a temporary paralysis and that the numbness would go away and that I would be able to walk this off. The ambulance ride, uh, ride felt like an eternity and, and I just kept repeating that. And where it came from, I don't know. I often attributed to probably like late night TV where I was half passed out and I was like, oh, <laughs> who knows what, but um, it's it's uh, more more likely uh, the influence of my parents and all that they persevered through in their lifetime and their their faith and their beliefs that uh, things do happen for a reason and if that that resonates with you that's uh, a very potent way to live life with grace mm -hmm. and acceptance things happen for a reason we don't have to like it and we don't need to know what that reason is but if you just appreciate that it's a part of something bigger and these are lessons that we're meant to endure and that these lessons will help us to grow, then that's reason enough for me. Uh, and I still don't have a reason for why I broke my back, but there's been many, many, many blessings that have come to my life because of an open mind and an open heart. Right. It's that Tony Robbins phrase that things don't happen to us. They happen for us. Yeah. Solid. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's some good advice right there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and something about this part of the story, I wanted to share another 
quote, at least um, it was, this is perhaps your, um, your words in describing the experience of it. And it was the doctor who in the hospital right away shared, um, shared this. And this is in your words, I believe what, what he said, uh, Josh, you're going to rock the world from this wheelchair. Don't think of yourself as handicapped. Before you know it, we're going to have you back on the mountains in a sit ski with all your friends. And, and you continued by saying that um, he shifted what could have been the darkest moment in your life to giving you hope and something to look forward to. And I'm, I'm certain that everyone who is listening understands how powerful that, that must have been. Um, and, and there's just so much energy and, and, and life that is in those words. And, and also, just before, I'd, I'd love to hear your, um, your feelings on it now, Josh, but I, I think it's also important to, to note that that was one person who just had that interaction with you and and it it shows the amount of potential that our words and our impact has on everyone around us and and uh, I'd be curious to know if you know if that doctor realizes how big of an impact that that he had um, and 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 it's possible you don't because we we don't even really know the the scope of our impact um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be aware of it. Um, so yeah, as, as I kind of just set that up, I'd, I'd love to to hear what's resonating with you um, when thinking back on that now, Josh. I think Gavman knows very well uh, the role that he's played in my life. And we, we're neighbors and we've become very, very close friends mm-hmm. over the last 15, 18 years now. And uh, that was a, a loaded statement, right? Uh, in medical school, they don't teach you bedside manner. And so somewhere in his life, uh, he developed those skills and that empathy and that awareness. Um, he could have come in quite linear and said, Hey, uh, you've dislocated vertebra T11 and T12, which has resulted in the severing of your spinal cord, which will render you paralyzed from the waist down. Moving forward, you're going to need a mobility device, most likely a wheelchair. Um, and that's that. Uh, sorry to hear son. Um, I wish you the best on your journey. Like he could have just come in black and white. Yeah. And that would have been of no fault to his, right? Because doctors are under great strain and demand. And he knew I was involved in the ski program, which is why he was able to shine a little bit of a different light on that moment in my life. And uh, the the big takeaway for me was he provided hope in a very dark moment. And he that one power sentence, you'll be back in the mountains, a place that I love and that brings peace and energy to me riding a sit ski, which gave me an opportunity to stay the course with a big part of my identity. I identified as being a skier and an athlete. And then with all your friends, he gave me my community. He's like, none of that was removed. And so with that alone, what a, what a great catalyst for creating change and moving forward with, again, an open mind and an open heart to whatever this new world was going to look like. And uh, clearly it was very overwhelming, but at least it was something that I could hang on to as I, I moved through this new life of, of living with the disability. Um, and, and yeah, Gab knows, and again, becoming a very close uh, personal friend, he's um, I've seen it in all of his actions. Like obviously I don't know how he interacts with uh, all of his patients, but uh, he is, an incredibly gifted human being that uh, practices medicine, but also has a lot of care for community and the people within it. So he um, was there to help support the entrance of both my children 
And uh, my one little dude had a respiratory issue when he was two weeks old. And if it wasn't for Gavin, he wouldn't be on the planet. He would have passed from his complications. But given he was my neighbor, I was like, Gav, um, dude's having troubles breathing. And he's like, is he doing this? And I'm like, yeah. And is he doing that? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, he stopped. He was hosting a Christmas party, left his Christmas party, came over and brought my son back to life. Wow. And then my mom and dad passed away in 2019 and he was there to support our family and help usher them through this life into their next. And, uh, yeah, so Gab man is the man and, um, he very much knows how I feel and, uh, and, and certainly the, uh, the effect that he's had. And you're right. Cause sometimes you never know, uh, the effect that you have on a person and it could have been a one-off, right? I might not have ever seen him again and he might not have ever known or indirectly, he might not have known uh, that uh, you know, he changed my world and in some small way that's helped me to change the world around me. And that's the episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can find us at all the usual places. Obstaclecoursepodcast.com. We're very active on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Obstacle Course Podcast. And speaking of Facebook, we have a great new growing community called the Obstacle Course Community that you can join, dialogue with Andrew and I and your fellow listeners about the previous week's episode and any obstacles you're dealing with. And we do appreciate reviews, whether it's on iTunes, Google, Facebook, whatever. It helps people find the podcast. And it has nothing to do with our fragile eagles. Well, uh, you know, we just like to hear back from great people just like yourselves. Thanks for listening, everybody. Keep pushing through those obstacles.